All right, we're going to get started here in a moment with our continuing study of Exodus chapter 12. And uh, this is now kind of the climactic scene of all of these different judgments that the Lord has been bringing upon the Egyptians as he has been using Moses and Aaron as his messengers to go before Pharaoh and to demand that Pharaoh let his people go. And we've worked our way through nine different plagues that were brought upon the Egyptian people. And, you know, this recurring pattern of the plague is promised, it happens, Pharaoh kind of relents or appears to relent, then he changes his mind, he hardens his heart, he hardens his heart so much that the Lord finally gets involved and hardens his heart. And as the Lord had told Moses before all of this even began, is that ultimately it would result in God removing from the land the firstborn of the Egyptians because of Pharaoh's refusal to let his firstborn go, which is the nation Israel. And so um, we started in uh, chapter 12 last time, and we were being informed here on how the Passover ritual is being instituted. And uh, we saw a number of different things in the course of the explanation of how this Passover is constructed by God. And there's some things that we drew a direct line from this passage to what we know in Christianity. Um, For example, the bondage and the exodus of God's people, the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and then the exodus from the slavery of Egypt really speaks to us about the bondage that we had in the world of sin before we come to Christ and how the Lord has freed us from that. Um, you know, we looked at some of the passages in Romans that where, where Paul the Apostle uses the imagery of the Passover that we're reading about here in Exodus 12 to explain exactly how the Lord affected the salvation of uh, humanity through Jesus Christ. We saw the symbology of the lamb, the Passover lamb. It's one of three things that the Passover meal includes as something to be eaten. And we know that the Passover lamb was symbolic of the ultimate lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, John the, uh, the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29, seeing Jesus approaching, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This clearly a reference back to the Passover lamb, the way in which God had constructed it from the very beginning. Uh, we saw the bitter herbs as being uh, something that, that uh, spoke to the bitterness of the slavery that the uh, Jewish people encountered as uh, they were under the thumb of Egypt. And of course, it speaks to the bitterness of, of the sin bondage that people who are still in the world suffer from. Uh, people who are seeped in the world tend to think that they're free. Um, and that's one of the great deceptions of Satan because they're not free. They're, they're, they're ensnared in the kinds of things of the world that are catering to the flesh and encouraged by the devil. And then we saw the unleavened bread. Um, the unleavened bread obviously spoke to the, the haste with which the uh, Israelites had to leave Egypt. Um, but it also speaks to the, the purification or the absence of sin associated with salvation. Um, you know, the Lord commanded that they would remove leaven, leaven from their houses for seven days. Uh, 
at the beginning of the Passover and for the seven days following. And you could kind of draw a line between that and the way in which coming to Christ removes salvation, or I'm sorry, removes sin from us. Um, we also see the symbology of the bread in the Last Supper that Jesus had with his apostles in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, where Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the, the Passover ritual is established here. Now, in, in the case of the first Passover, it was vitally important to follow the instructions exactly as God gave it to them because the obedience to that would be that which would cause the Lord's judgment to pass over them. And in passing over them, of course, uh, this would mean that their firstborns would be spared, whereas the firstborns of the Egyptians would be taken. So we pick it up tonight in verse 21. And uh, we carry on in the chapter, verse 21, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves, according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your homes to strike you. Now, the, Moses is doing what was not only good practice, but at an absolute necessity in terms of pushing out among all of the Israelites the instructions from the Lord. And that is, he speaks to his elders and he describes the whole process to them and he's counting on them to now go and lead by example among the people, uh, because as we're going to see in a few moments here, uh, the Israelites by this time numbered a lot. Now, there's scholarly disagreement on exactly how many Israelites uh, existed at this time, but whether it's the lowest of the numbers that scholars would point to or the greatest, it was a lot of people. And so it required that Moses take the formula that God had given him, hand it off to the elders, have them uh, bring this process to the people so that they would be able to follow God's instructions carefully and thereby keep their homes safe. I think I mentioned last time, but it's worth repeating that uh, it, within these instructions is the instruction to take a bunch of hyssop. It's, a, it's an herb. It's uh, in the, I believe it's in the mint family. And um, they were to use that to dip in the blood as they would, as they would butcher the lamb, or not butcher the lamb, but, but kill the lamb. They would collect the blood from the sacrifice. And then this hyssop branch would be dipped into the blood, and that would be used as a brush to brush blood onto the lintel of the door and onto the doorposts. Um, apparently, hyssop was very uh, appropriate for this task because it had stiff branches, and it had what are described as hairy leaves, the leaves had a lot of texture to them and it made it very suitable as a brush for sprinkling the blood according to God's instructions. And we see throughout scripture and particularly through the Mosaic law that hyssop was, was an herb that was used for ritualistic cleansing and sacrifice in a number of contexts. It was used in the context of cleansing a leper, for example. Leviticus 14 describes that. It was used... Um, 
in the process of making the, taking the ashes of the red heifer that would be used to cleanse the temple. Uh, Numbers uh, chapter 19 also describes that. Um, and it was used in all kinds of purification rituals. It was also involved in um, the sacrifice of Jesus, if you will, on the cross. Uh, in John chapter 19, we read that, that uh, Jesus was offered sour wine while he was up on the cross. And that sponge soaked in it was lifted up to him on a branch of hyssop. So it has uh, a tie to ritualistic things of purification and sacrifice. Um, and then we read in verse 24, And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Now this is something that God was very clear on. He wanted this episode of, of rescue, of his rescue of his people, to be conveyed to the generations that would follow this generation that was in bondage in Egypt. And the way in which he wanted to convey that, that grand act by God is through this Passover ritual. Uh, and th th this is what is, is related even today at Seder dinners today. Whether, whether you're considering a Jewish family who is deeply religious or ones that are more culturally Jewish, they still are, are participating in this ritual and it continues the truth of that rescue of the Jewish people forward in time. And I, I've said many times, but I believe that one of the great blessings of studying the Old Testament, as we do, of 21st century Christians, is that we have countless accounts in the Old Testament that give us a window into the glory of God. This is one of the great purposes for which God called out the Jewish people. They are his ensign. They are his banner. They are, uh, they are uh, collectively a signature of God's might, his power, his deliverance, his mercy, his grace, his long-suffering, his, his promise-keeping. And as we go through these accounts, we see very clearly how God works in the midst of, of human affairs to bring about his purpose and ultimately to bring about the salvation of all of humanity. And the, the Passover represents the archetypical work of salvation that God would bring ultimately to all of mankind. In the Passover of account of Exodus chapter 12, but in the example that the Passover represents, we see how God is going to affect rescue. He's going to affect rescue by the blood of the lamb. The blood of a perfect sacrifice is going to be the agent that causes the judgment for sin to pass over us it's taken upon uh, Jesus himself, and the net result is those who put their faith and trust in him have everlasting life. We, are, we escape the judgment. We are passed over on the judgment. And this, this ritual that is being created um, to convey that idea is something that God says he wants them to pass on to their sons forever. Verse 25, it will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. 
Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now what we see here is that by virtue of what the Lord has now laid out and what he has set up in this Passover ritual, he is conveying two works that he has done. The first thing that he's done is he has defeated their enemy. Now they haven't, they haven't seen it yet, but for God, as soon as he says it, it's as good as done. And so ultimately what will come from this is the defeat of the obstinance of Pharaoh who refused to recognize the Lord. Remember back in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, when Moses and Aaron appear before uh, Pharaoh, and he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't believe in the Lord. I mean, Pharaoh considered himself to be deity. And so to hear these two men come into his presence and say that he must obey the Lord, he says, who is this guy? He's not the boss of me. And through the succession of nine different judgments, and now the 10th is on the doorstep, um, he is about to have his will broken. And so objective number one of all this is defeat the enemy of the children of Israel. Objective number two is to free them from that bondage. Now, being freed from bondage doesn't mean that they will move from the bondage of Egypt to Easy Street, because we know as we make our way through the book of Exodus that making their way through the wilderness was a day-to-day trusting of the Lord, relying upon the Lord, looking to the Lord for provision, for peace, for protection. And this is very much the way it is in the, um, in the experience of Christianity, isn't it? Uh, we come to the Lord, we come to faith, we're released from the bondage of sin, we have a certain future of eternal life and presence with the Lord. These are great and precious promises. But the Lord also says, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so we know that as we escape the bondage of sin, we have a walk of faith ahead of us for every day that we draw breath on the earth until the day that the Lord calls us home, either in the rapture or in our own mortal death. Um, And ultimately, all of what God has promised comes to full fruition. But this idea that our enemy has been defeated is something we as Christians can, can never forget. Very often we can get caught up in despair, discouragement, whatever. The enemy is, is yapping in your ear, spitting condemnation at you, um, spitting discouragement at you, uh, making you feel down about your personal circumstances. And we can forget that our enemy has been defeated. He has the ability still to harass or, or to um, spit condemnation at you, but he is defeated and we can rest in that. Now, the thing that uh, is very, very encouraging in verses 27 and 8, not only is it encouraging, but it's also vital. And that is that the, the children of Israel, um, they, they bowed their heads and worshiped when they received all of the news. When they were told, this is exactly what you must do. This is why you must do it. This is how it will benefit you. The first thing we read that they did in verse 27 was they bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the second thing that we read that they did is verse 28. Then they went away and they followed the directions. And and this is why worship when done properly, worship when it's done with the right heart, is so vital to the Christian experience. 
Because when we come together in worship, not to be entertained, not for a light show, not for a smoke show, but for the opportunity to not look at the stage, but to look upward and to express our, our thanksgiving, our gratitude, our love for the Lord, our praise for the Lord, what that does is it solidifies in our hearts who exactly we're dealing with. Because sometimes it's very easy to forget who it is we're worshiping. We worship the Almighty God. The closer we draw to him, the clearer we see him, the clearer we see ourselves, and the clarity with which we see ourselves keeps us from falling in line to the same lie that Satan gave to Eve, the same lie that Satan believed himself, which is that he could be like the Most High, that we could take over the seat of control of our lives, that we can determine what's best for us, that we can do that which pleases us, and we start to get detached from what is pleasing to God. And so the children of Israel here, as they're getting the news, here's what you must do, here's why you must do it, I want you to pass this on to future generations, they praise God because they realize, A, our enemy's going to be defeated, B, we're going to be freed, so they worship him, and in that worship, they come in touch with who he is, and as soon as they understand who they're dealing with, they obey. And it's that obedience, you know, it's something that Art prayed tonight when we were praying um, for a couple of folks who are close to receiving the Lord, maybe, but, but haven't yet. And he said, you know, um, Lord, I pray that, that um, their hearts would be moved and that they would grasp what they now know and make a decision because sometimes when you kick the can down the road too many times, you kind of get detached from what this was all about in the first place. And the enemy can use that delay. And um, I, I, I think that when we, uh, when we get in touch with the Lord and we see his greatness and his goodness, we need to make a decision. We need, we need to... We need to take stock of what we know and we need to act on it. And whether that action is actually coming to faith in the first place or whether it is service of the Lord or whether it is submission to the Lord, you know, take a moment and worship who he is. Thank him for the clarity with which he speaks to us through this word and then act. Uh, for men who are with me on, on Tuesday nights in, in the epistle of James, that 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 section that we studied uh, two weeks ago about the, the link between faith and works is kind of on this point. That look, if, if, you, if you hold a genuine faith in who God is and what he means in your life, then the knowledge of that should provoke actions that evidence that belief. And, and they did this here. They, they worshiped the Lord. It brought them in touch with who he is. And then because of what they knew, because God told it to them, they acted on it. And so here's an instance like what James was talking about in his epistle, where works evidenced faith. They heard from God, they acted accordingly. And this is, that action will ultimately be what saves, saves them, right? So we pick it up in verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight, that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, 
stopping right there, we have, we have made note many times as we've made our way through Scripture that God is no respecter of persons. And notice that the way in which this verse 29 is constructed, it, it's made clear that no one was spared of this. God, starting with the firstborn of Pharaoh and moving right down to the lowest rungs of society, brought this judgment to bear. And this is something we need to be reminded of in um, the sanction against those who would not receive the only provision for which God has made for their sins. Is that I don't care how morally righteous someone is. I don't care if they serve in a high station in a so-called church or denomination. If they have not made a heartfelt confession of faith to the Lord, the judgment that is promised to the unrepentant sinner is going to befall them and, um, and the Lord will not show any kind of favoritism or, or um, priority on that at all. Um, verse 30, so Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now, if you can, I don't know, but if you've ever been around a family who has lost a child, it is one of the most heartbreaking experiences that you'll ever encounter. And, and, and you know, it's, it's just an unspeakable tragedy when a parent is predeceased by their children. So now imagine every single person you know, every single family you know, is going through that kind of tragic grief at the same time. And you could imagine that the Egyptians now are just done. Now keep in mind, this comes after decimation of their livestock, after decimation of their crops, after uh, uh, plagues of flies, lice, and frogs. Uh, all of these things have already come to pass. And now this. And uh, again, we've been pointing out as we've been going along that with each one of these successive plagues, the Lord is poking in the eye of the different deities that the Egyptians worship. And in this particular uh, plague, um, the Lord is poking at a deity known as Osiris, who was the, the god of, of life, of giving of life, and also Pharaoh himself, who was considered deity among the faithful Egyptians. And yet, if he is such a, a red-hot deity, why is it that he himself suffered the same uh, judgment that befell all the people. And so this becomes uh, very clear that the gods that the Egyptians worship have no sway, have no power, have no influence against the God of Israel, which we know, of course, is the true and the living God. Interesting historic note, um, because the... Um, the, the archaeologists and Bible scholars are always looking in the ground for uh, means of validating the history that the scripture contains. Because as we've often noted, the Bible is a lot of things, but one of the things it is is a history book. And the history that it portrays has never been proven conclusively to be off or to be false. To the contrary, Archaeologists, Bible scholars, and Bible skeptics continue to find validation for things that were previously thought to be 
just made up. This is a storybook. It's just another one of those stories that's contained in the Bible. And, uh, and then later, you know, with the turn of a shovel, <laughs> they realize, whoops, uh, it was actually true. Well, here's one that I found that I thought was interesting. Uh, Amenhotep II was considered the Egyptian pharaoh who was ruling at the time of the Exodus. A uh, man by the name of Amenhotep II. And the individual who succeeded him was known as the Fourth. Now, Thutmose IV was not his firstborn son. In fact, there was an inscription found in a shrine that's connected to the great Sphinx that you see there in Egypt. And it records a solemn promise from the Egyptian gods vowing that Thutmose IV would succeed his father, Amenhotep II. Now, you'd say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, that's the very question the historians asked, is that why would it be necessary to record a special promise by the gods that this man, Thutmose IV, would, would, would follow his father if he were the firstborn? Because that would be what would happen automatically. There, there would be nothing exceptional about it. There would be nothing that would gain anybody's notice. It would be thoroughly expected that the firstborn of the pharaoh would be his successor. But yet here a specific mention is made to Thutmose IV as succeeding uh, Amenhotep II. And so the inference from that is that this individual, Thutmose IV, was not the firstborn son, which would lend credence to the fact that Pharaoh of the time of Exodus indeed lost his firstborn son and this became a terrible tragedy in the lineage of Egypt and, uh, of course, that coupled with all of the different families and people that were affected by this, this plague, I, I, I personally believe that there will come a time, because one of the things that Bible scholars point out, they love to bang this drum, is that there isn't conclusive proof that the Israelites ever were captive in Egypt. Now, that's being challenged uh, in recent times. There have been different, um, different things that have been brought to the fore that, that are evidence that, that suggests that indeed the biblical account, account is exactly true. But these are the kind of things that biblical uh, skeptics poke at and, and, and try to challenge the historic record to, to make the case that what the Bible tells us happened with the Jewish people in Egypt never happened. They would poke at, for example, the fact that of, jo of Joseph being a high official in the Egyptian uh, nation. So these are the kind of things that I think the Lord will reveal in his timing. Another, just an interesting side light, uh, we often wonder uh, whatever happened to Noah's Ark. And I know there are different stories out there, different claims about uh, so-and-so found uh, Noah's Ark on this mountain or that mountain. I don't think anything super conclusive has come to the fore yet. But I was listening to, um, I think it was Jan Markell's show and they were talking about that. And one of the theories that one of her guests put forth is that he said that, you know, because the ark is what was a prototype, shall we say, of salvation, of the way in which you escape the coming judgment by, by coming into Jesus, right? And um, the theory of this one guest was that 
If the ark is ever found, he believes it will be found just before the rapture. It will be kind of that last card that the Lord lays down on the table to say, here it is, okay? This redemption that happened that you think is in a storybook, it's real. It's the last card I'm playing, then, then I'm taking my people home. You know, and I thought, you know, that's, that's a pretty plausible way to think about it. Not in the Bible, not thus saith the Lord. But when you think about what the ark represented, the message it conveyed, if nothing else, the long suffering of a man who would work, for, at, work at building something no one ever saw before, no one ever thought they needed, the improbability of its, of its dimensions and all of that, and at the same time preaching that judgment is coming in the form of, of a climatological event that's never happened before, there's never been rain before that time, and, and, and just the Lord's long suffering until finally he takes those who would enter in and, and takes them to safety. And so this idea that one day, perhaps with a turn of a shovel, that piece of evidence will come to the fore. And, and you know, the Lord is long-suffering, but he's got a, a timetable and he's going to meet that. So here he is, um, Pharaoh, joining in the choir of cries of despair and anguish with his people because they have lost their firstborn sons. Verse 31, then, then he called for Moses and Aaron by night. So he, he didn't even wait till morning. He immediately calls for Moses and Aaron and says, rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. Oh, and bless me also. You see that last little bit? Oh, and bless me also. A couple of things stand out. First of all, we remember the negotiating posture that Pharaoh has taken. One time he says, well, you can go, but the women and children stay. And then you can go, but the livestock stays. Well, now he's saying, take the wives, take the children, take the livestock, get out of here. But before you go, would you petition the Lord to bless me? Okay. And uh, this now with that verse 32, we get the full circle of Exodus 5, verse 2, where Pharaoh had initially said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Well, I think he knows him now. And uh, I think that now what he knows is that God is in command, he is not, and that he desperately needs the blessing of God. And this is one of the great challenges that we, as witnesses for Jesus Christ, this is one of the great challenges that we have, is to try and bring to someone's notice that they need the blessing of God. They have been born into condemnation. If nothing else happens, they are headed for condemnation. And so what we really tell people is, you're in need of a rescue. And the Lord Jesus Christ can bless you with that if only you'll let him. That's essentially the message, right? That's the bullseye of the, of, of the gospel is that you are in need of a rescue and God will bless you with it if you'll only let him. And now we see clearly that Pharaoh has gotten the message 
And the, and the Egyptians urged the people. Now, when you see the Egyptians, I'm, I'm taking that to mean the leadership, um, those around Pharaoh. They're urging the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So finally, they're, they're, you know, they're kind of adding up the different calamities that have befallen them. And one thing the scripture doesn't give us is the time frame in which all of this happened. I don't think it was like 10 plagues in 10 days. Um, but it was, even if it was 10 months, which I don't think it was that long, but let's assume it was 10 months. If you consider what has happened to this nation in the, in the space of a less than a year, I mean, people's heads would be spinning, right? I mean, we had one plague, one, one you know, pandemic, and look at what it did to us. And so um, the people took their dough before it was leavened, as God had instructed, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now this is something God had predicted at the, at the burning bush. I mean, he had... He had told Moses that ultimately, because Moses here is expressing all of this, this doubt and consternation about you're going to have me, a sheep herder for 40 years, go in front of the most powerful man in this region of the world, maybe in all of the world, and give him orders? You know, how is that going to happen? Well, <laughs> the Lord telling him that, look, not only are you going to do that, but I'm going to make it such that your people are going to plunder the Egyptians by merely, not, not by drawing swords and chucking spears, but simply by asking, hey, you know all that gold that I know you have hidden under your bureau drawer in your house? Uh, can I have that? Um, I really like that outfit you had on the other day. I think it's my size. Could I have that? And, and literally, God shows them, the Israelites, favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. And I would simply say that God, in effecting his purpose, can show favor to you when you walk in obedience, when you walk in his will. You can get yourself in the midst of situations or in front of people that you would never expect you could overcome or that you could influence or that you could uh, have favor such that they would not harm you or, or uh, prejudice you. The Lord has done it on many occasions in scripture and I know he's done it on many occasions, probably in your life, certainly in my life. When I have just said, okay, God, this doesn't, this doesn't look like a great outcome for me here in this particular situation, but I'm just gonna trust you. I, I'm, just, I'm just gonna keep walking forwards one step at a time and follow what you're asking for me to do. And you'd be surprised how God can show you favor. He can prosper you. He can get you out of unbelievable, um, unbelievable situations. Amen. Yeah. And so they granted what they requested. They plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, the typical formula that's used uh, from that particular number that's given there in verse 37 of 600,000 is four to one. So that would say then that there's, there was maybe as many as 2.4 million Israelites. 
And I'd like to say that there, it said that, it said there, so at least it's 600,000, but it's probably maybe as much as four times that. I was quite surprised when I went to look and check around on that number that there's a lot of scholarly debate about this number. Um, and it has a lot to do with linguistics in the way in which the number is expressed in Hebrew. I won't take you there. It's not my wheelhouse. And it's not really important in this. It's interesting. But it's not important in the sense that there's any biblical doctrine or, or promise of God that is controlled by this particular number. And, you know, I read the different uh, range of numbers of Israelites of this time that were in the captivity. There's a lot of doubt expressed that it could be as high as 2 million people because when they compare it to the estimated populations of other peoples around the world at that time, including the Egyptians, which according to the people who have doubts about this number, say that the number of the entire population of Egypt was something less than 3 million people. Uh, again, th this is not me talking, it's not my analysis, but I was surprised to find that there is a lot of scholarly debate on exactly the size of that number. But if we take this at face value as it's been translated here, 600,000 men on foot, besides children and, and wives, so it, it could well number up to 2 million or more. Verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds a great deal of livestock. Now, a mixed multitude would tell us that the people that were moving in this exodus within the Jewish people were also other people who at least were not uh, ethnically is Israelites. Um, I suspect there would have been some Egyptians in their number who, over the course of time of associating with the Jewish people, identified with them, um, started to take on board some of what they believed and worshipped and uh, and there could have been peoples from other nations that surrounded that associated with or got connected with the Israelites that could have intermarried or whatever and so they become this multitude that's moving now of course um, they, they would have to have uh, taken on board what it means to be Jewish we're going to see that in a moment um, and then you've got all these people and you've got a great deal of livestock. So you could imagine that moving this entire congregation of people and animals was no small feat. Uh, verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of, of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day. So again, the precision of the Lord is evidenced here in the text that to the day, 430 years, they are now exiting the country. It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now this, uh, this tells us here that, that the, uh, the children of Israel they are now expelled from Egypt. It's not like uh, Pharaoh agrees, okay, you, you, you can go as you please. No, they're being kicked out. And this is something that uh, the Lord told Moses um, in verse 1 of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, 
Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. So Pharaoh isn't just nonchalant about this. He wants those people gone. And uh, it, is, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout the generations. The significance of that night the Lord wants to be impressed upon his people for generations to come. Verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Now, this, this, this is similar to um, what, we, what we say and what we do when we celebrate communion, right? Communion is an ordinance given to the church. And so without, you know, being haughty about it we do when we offer communion here as we will a week from sunday we make it clear this is something that believers do as part of the church it's an ordinance given to the church it's not to be taken casually in fact um, the apostle paul literally had to lecture the corinthian church for the cavalier attitude with which they took communion um, and it's the same with the passover he says no foreigner will will eat this um it but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. So there's a tie between circumcision and eating of the Passover. Uh, if you are somebody who is coming into the Jewish faith from outside, circumcision, which says that you are part of the covenant, you recognize, you, you accept the covenant, um, is critical before you would be able to eat the Passover. Um, and a sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Now that is an interesting foreshadowing of what will become uh, the course of events when Jesus is on the cross. He's there on the cross along with the two other malefactors that are up there. And... Um, and when, you know, the people who are watching this crucifixion scene uh, realize it's getting late, etc., they the, the Romans that are attending the execution decide, well, let's end this now. And so typically what they would do is they would break the legs of those on the cross. You'd say, well, how does that relate to death? Well, what typically kills somebody who's crucified is asphyxiation. By virtue of being pinned up there with nails in your hands and your feet, it's excruciatingly painful to support your body weight so that your diaphragm can move in a way to bring air into your lungs. And that, that's the torture of it. It's bad enough you've got these nails through your hands and feet, but, but the process of breathing requires you to put pressure on those points so that you can support yourself enough to take a breath. If they want to hasten your death, they break the two strongest supports you have, which are your legs, the femurs on your legs, and then ultimately you die very quickly after that. So they did that to the first two. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that mercifully he had already uh, given up his spirit. So they didn't break a bone in his body. And this became another uh, connection to the, the Passover uh, scenario with, with the lamb there. And um, it's interesting because um, as we read there in verse 42 a moment ago about that they were brought out of the land of Egypt. This phrase, out of Egypt, becomes a phrase that's often repeated throughout Scripture. I think it appears, yeah, 56 different times 
and, and it's always used in a context of being delivered. In the New Testament, it's being delivered from sin. In fact, we sing a song uh, called Egypt that you know really tells that story. And Paul the Apostle kind of uses that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, where he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're still in Egypt. Uh, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. What Paul is saying there is, look, for those people who want to remain in Egypt, that is to say in bondage to sin, um, they will not inherit the land, if you want to call it that, the, the, the kingdom of God. The land of Israel was kind of the, the metaphor there for what Paul is talking about here. But then Paul says, no, but wait, you were delivered. You were washed. You were sanctified. That is to say, set apart by God, just like the Israelites were set apart and taken out of that bondage so that they could move on and, uh, and be free of it. Uh, moving down to uh, verse 48, when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. You need to embrace the covenant before you can participate in this. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did, uh, thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. So what's being told to us there in that last verse of the chapter is in one day, these people became a nation. They were, they were a workforce, they were an ethnic group, but they were in another nation. And in one day, the Lord drew them out, forcibly drew them out of Egypt, and they became a nation. And it is, it is chilling and very interesting that in the 66th chapter of Isaiah, verse 8, uh, we read this. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Now, Isaiah is speaking of a future time when a nation will be born in one day. And when was that? May 14th, 1948. In one day, a group of people who came from all different corners of the world gathered together in the land, the very land that God's people in Exodus chapter 12 are heading towards the same promised land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same land that Joseph ultimately said, when I am dead and gone and you return to the land, please bring my bones there because that's where we belong. Isaiah prophesied it forward to what we now know of as the nation of Israel, but it had application backward because literally in one day, God gave birth to this nation. It's happened twice now. And it'll, it won't need to happen again. And, uh, and so it's, it's just exciting to see how the, the paradigms, the, the, the examples, the, the metaphors that are used by God have truth in them, 
have truth in the past, have truth in the future, have truth in the present. This is why the word of God is so, so precious. We're going to stop there. We'll pick it up next time in Exodus chapter 13. Heavenly Father, God, uh, how exciting it is to see how you, have, how you have moved through your people over the centuries, Lord, how the promises that you have made to them have been brought forth in truth in spite of just unbelievable odds, just, just improbability upon improbability, and yet, Lord, you act and you move and you show favor and you show mercy, you show grace, you show might, you show power. And in all of that, God, you make it abundantly and obviously clear that you are the God of all creation, that your promises are true yesterday, today, and forever, that the promises you make to your people will come to full fruition, every single one of them. And Lord, we, we are here tonight so blessed, so thankful for the promises you have made to us of everlasting life. And so, Lord, um, we lift your name on high tonight. We thank you, God, for your rich blessings on us. We thank you, God, for your people, Israel, who through their lives, through their trials and tribulations and victories, they have demonstrated or allowed you to demonstrate your power and might. So all glory be given to you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.